Ricky Cool joins me in episode 70. Ricky hails from the Birmingham area of the UK and drew great inspiration as a teenager from the American folk festivals which brought some harmonica greats to the city. Under his alter ego Ricky Cool, he went on to lead several successful rhythm and blues bands with Jamaican music also brought into the set. He also played harmonica in a band with Led Zeppelin's Robert Plant. Ricky played harmonica and saxophone in most of these bands and this combination of instruments has led to his recent series of excellent YouTube videos called Mississippi Saxophone. In these videos he picks out some great horn lines and shows how to play them on harmonica. This podcast is sponsored by Zydel Harmonicas. Visit the oldest harmonica factory in the world at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Hello, Ricky Cool, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Neil. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. First of all, start with your name, Ricky Cool. So uh, is that your real surname? No, it isn't. My real name is Richard Rogers. Oh, well, it's a, it's a cool name, cool stage name. Yeah. Right, so you're from uh, Birmingham in the UK, is that right? You're originally from Birmingham? That's correct. I, I was born in Hales Owen, which is about um, eight miles from Birmingham. I've sort of been in and out of Birmingham and have now lived in Birmingham for a long time. So what got you into uh, into music around Birmingham and playing the harmonica in your youth? Up until the age of into my 20s, I was in Hales Owen and then lived in Kidderminster for a while. But when I was in Hales Owen, I got into the blues basically through the route which a lot of people have uh, had, which was the Rolling Stones. Although having said that, I do remember at the age of six being on holiday with my parents in Western Supermare and hearing Heartbreak Hotel on the jukebox at the hotel we were staying in and then taking money or asking for money from my parents and playing Heartbreak Hotel over and over and over again. So it must have resonated with me in some way. And and I was heavily into rock and roll as a young child. used to love Little Richard. When sort of that sort of rock and roll started to get sanitised, I lost interest for a while. But then the Beatles, first of all, and then the Rolling Stones really turned me back on to music in a big way, particularly the Rolling Stones. And I was just fascinated by looking at some of the names of the people who were given songwriting credits on their on their singles and albums, those early ones when they were mainly doing covers. That was the pathway into the into the blues. And once I discovered the likes of Howlin' Wolf, uh, Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy Williamson. I mean, I was gone. From the age of about 13 through to 18, I was up in my bedroom every night and just devouring blues music wherever I could hear it from. I got a boy child coming, gonna be, he gonna be a rolling stone. I started playing guitar when I was 13 and then started fooling, I won't say playing, I'll say fooling around with the harmonica when I was 15. Luckily, every year 
in at Birmingham Town Hall, they used to do the American Folk Blues Festival. I've got some of those DVDs from back then, yeah, some brilliant recordings, so yeah. The first one I went to was 1965 when I was 15. I think the harmonica player who was on that was um, Big Walter, and certainly Big Mama Thornton, I think, was on that bill, and she played harmonica, and possibly Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. I was exposed to some of the greats and it was really Sonny Terry at that time who just fascinated me, you know, just seeing him and Brandon McGee, seeing him sitting there and the way he used his hands and the whooping. I'd never seen that, obviously never seen anything like that in my life before or heard anything like that before. So I was hugely influenced by Sonny Terry, like so many other players. I loved Little Walter, but I just couldn't, I couldn't figure that out because it, the sound, the amplified sound was something I just didn't have any idea how to achieve. So the other really big influence in those days was Sonny Boy Williamson, number two. And particularly a couple of albums he did, I think, on the Storyville label, which I think he recorded in the 60s with Memphis Slim. Those albums, which were very much a sort of an acoustic album, I loved those albums. And Sonny Boy, of course, did some solo harmonica numbers on those, uh, like Moving Downside the River of Rhine, which was a particular favourite of mine, and I learnt to play that. Cruising down the river run, I've been, I've been, I've Yeah, I been. see on your, on your YouTube channel, you demonstrate you've got some sort of shrine to Sonny Boy in your house there. <laughs> well, yes, I have. <laughs> You're quite right. The singer from King Pleasure and the Biscuit Boys, a, a British swing band, Mark Skirving, is a wonderful artist. And um, I commissioned him to do a picture of Sonny Boy Williamson for me. So I've got that. It's surrounded with albums and EPs. And Yeah, I, I have a, a painting done by a person that I knew of, Money Waters. So yeah, similarly. Not quite a shrine, but... The other big album back in those days, sort of a bit later in the 60s, was um, Hoodoo Man Blues by Junior Wells. That was a big album in the UK. Yeah, so you, you mentioned, obviously, the Rolling Stones being a kind of gateway into discovering all the blues guys. So yeah. did Mick Jagger's harmonica playing inspire you to pick up the harmonica, or was it... A- I wouldn't have said so. You know, when I saw them on the television and seeing either him playing, or you would see Brian Jones playing the harmonica, you know, the look of it was something I was interested in. But it, it, it wasn't them that inspired me to play the harmonica, or John Lennon in The Beatles. It was yeah. actually seeing the American artists and hearing those records. I mean, the blues festivals were a really big thing for me. And a lot of the jazz concerts that used to come to um, Birmingham Town Hall in the 60s. I remember going to see Theolonius Monk when I was about 15 or 16, and I didn't understand a thing about what he was playing. But it was just the whole thing about seeing these guys on a stage looking so cool. I I was just wrapped up in the whole idea of seeing black musicians playing. 
No, it sounds like you're really in the right place at the right time to get there. Yeah. So lucky to all those guys coming across. It was a brilliant thing, wasn't it? I mean, when, when I grew up in the northwest of England, there were blues festivals at Colne and Burnley. So I did get to see those. And some of the kind of older American musicians would come across, but it was more kind of British bands. Yes, I remember the Colne things very well because I was the compare. Oh, were you? On the international stage at the at the Municipal Hall in Cole throughout oh. the 1990s and just into the turn of the century. Well, I probably saw you there, yeah. <laughs> yes, I saw a lot of those guys. And, of course, obviously the American white artists who'd been influenced by them. So, I, you know, I saw the fabulous Thunderbirds there, Mighty Flyers. And I was fortunate enough, of course, to be able to introduce them on stage. Yeah, fantastic, yeah. So... You then, I understand, started playing the saxophone and that's where you had your sort of formal music training, yeah? Yes, that's right. Well, as I said, I started playing harmonica when I was 15, although I actually never saw another harmonica player apart from at the Folk Blues Festivals. I never saw a harmonica player to talk to about harmonica until I was probably 17, 18 and started what I'd kind of learned just from records, my bits of bit of guitar, I started going to some folk clubs and playing guitar and harmonica on a rack, trying to do my best at uh, playing some blues. And I'd I'd be playing Bob Dylan numbers as well and things like that at at that time. In terms of the saxophone, I didn't actually start playing the saxophone until I was 27. And, And that was when I was a member of Ricky Cool and the Icebergs. The material we were doing, it seemed appropriate to have a second saxophone. We all thought it would be great to be able to do some saxophone harmonies. You know, that was what actually got me started on the saxophone. And then I did go through um, formal uh, sort of training on that and went through all the grades. I took a diploma. But even so, in terms of being able to get up and improvise and sit in with people and whatever, the harmonica would be the, you know, my instrument of choice. We'll get on to uh, the saxophone uh, part uh, later on in the podcast because yeah. you've done a, a fantastic series of youtube videos called the mississippi saxophone you you know you, you talk about learning from um saxophone solos and riffs and things like that which is a which is a great resource so yeah we'll get onto that shortly but but yeah like getting back onto the you mentioned your ricka cool and the icebergs i think that was your your first band Yeah, Ricky Cool and the Icebergs was the first sort of band where it got a little bit serious, if you like. I did play in other bands before then with people who subsequently were members of Ricky Cool and the Icebergs. But I mean, when that band formed, like so many bands, it was really just a group of friends making music together and having a bit of fun. It was just one of those things for about six months to a year when that band first started, everything just seemed to slot into place. We started a residency at a pub called The Barrel Organ in Birmingham. It just so happened that because of the nature of the music we were playing, which was rhythm and blues, we were playing some sort of country and Western influence stuff. We discovered Louis Jordan, so we were playing a bit of swing. There was no one else in Birmingham doing anything like that at all. I suppose, in a way, it was the Birmingham equivalent of what was happening in the London pub circuit. Because we were sort of totally unique in Birmingham with what we were doing, in no time at all at the Barrel Organ, we were drawing huge crowds. People would queue up outside to on a Saturday night to see us play. We would rehearse all afternoon, go home and have some tea, come back and do the evening show. So, that I mean, it was a great grounding for the band. Within six months of starting that residency, we did a half-hour TV special 
on Midland Regional TV. And as a result of that, we got seen by Mike Vernon, who asked us to go to um, his studios in Chipping Norton, where he did all his Blue Horizon recordings. He did some recording work with us. It didn't actually lead to anything, but we started going down to London. We were doing this on the coattails, really, of two other bands from the Midlands who were the Steve Gibbons band, who was sort of like the, the premier band in Birmingham at that time, and a band from Dudley called Little Acre. We then started going down to London and playing in various places and soon started having our own London following, which continued in various subsequent bands after the icebergs. So what were you playing in this band? You were the singer. And I th- well, I was, I was fronting it. The thing about Ricky Cool and the Icebergs, which um, I think appealed to a lot of people as well, the name Ricky Cool, when we first started the band, we called ourselves Tricky Dicky and the Wildcats. Uh-huh. Now, Tricky Dicky was a nickname that I'd been given when I was working in a factory. Because my name's Richard, uh, it came about because Richard Nixon was running against Hubert Humphrey for the American presidency, and he'd been christened Tricky Dicky. So I became Tricky Dicky. So we had Tricky Dicky and the Wildcats. We decided we needed to change that name because Marty Wilde's band was called the Wildcats. And it just so happened that Steve Gibbons had released a single called Johnny Cool. So Ricky became Ricky Cool. I I mean, I was a very shy folk club performer and a very shy member of bands. The amount of singers I've come in on here, you said to me, I was very shy. It's quite amazing, isn't it? That Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. But but now I'd got this name, Ricky Cool. So I couldn't just go to a microphone and sort of (laughs) mumble, oh, thank you very much, and the the next number is... That wouldn't work. I'd got to live up to this name. So I adopted an American persona. I used to weave stories about this character, Ricky Cool, who was actually American and had been virtually every important milestone in the history of popular music. He'd, I'd been there. I was the guy who was walking towards the Sun Studios when um, Elvis Presley turned up in his pickup truck and drove through a puddle which completely drenched my outfit. And mm-hmm. so I was brushing myself off as he went in and recorded That's All Right, Mama. So I used to tell these stories, and the more ridiculous they became, the more people people sort of wanted to believe them and of course i used to do it in a in a in a mock american accent but it was part of what made the band popular you know you have to remember at that time most bands were either rock bands or progressive the punk thing and the and the pub rock thing was happening in london but in birmingham You know, it it took a while for that to, you know, there's no internet for people to watch or YouTube. Were you playing harmonica with the Icebergs? I was was playing harmonica in uh, Ricky Cool and the Icebergs, playing quite a lot of harmonica in the early days of the band. But then once I started practicing the saxophone and got to a point where I could play a few melodies and things like that, the saxophone worked its way more into the band because we were veering more towards Louis Jordan-type swing and Bob Wills-type Western swing. And then you're in a band called Ricky Cool and the Rialtos, which... So Robert Plant had some involvement, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, of course. So uh, what's the story there? Well, Ricky Cool and the Rialtos followed on immediately after the icebergs finished. Most of the work we did was in London with that band. Um, we, were, we, we became very established on the London sort of pub and club circuit. But the members of the band 
Some of them were from Dudley and had been in Little Acre. So it was kind of some members of Little Acre. And we also, after about six months of being together, recruited a, a wonderful guitarist and a real close friend of mine, Andy Sylvester. Now, Andy Sylvester had played bass in Chicken Shack in the 1960s. He was the bass player on the big hit record they had, their version of Etta James's I'd Rather Be Blind, with um, Christine Perfect doing the vocals. Now, Andy came from Kidderminster, and that was the area Robert Plant, in his early days, he had a band as well. Andy knew about Robert and Robert certainly knew about Andy because Chicken Shack were a big band before anything had happened for Robert Plant at all. So they'd kept that association going. So if we were playing anywhere around the Kidderminster area, sometimes Robert would come and see the band. This was just after the time when John Bonham had died. So I'm talking around about 1980, 81. So it was a difficult time for Robert and he was at a bit of a loose end. And I, I believe it's, I'm correct in saying that Armut Ertigan at Atlantic Records had suggested that he should go back to his roots go back to the blues. So Robert decided to do this. And as luck would have it for us, he asked if we would be interested in in teaming up with him. And this was the original um, Honey Drippers lineup. So the Honey Drippers lineup was basically the Rialtos plus Robbie Blunt and Robert. And we started doing clubs and colleges up and down the country as the Honey Drippers. Robert Plant was singing though, not you in this. Oh no, Robert was singing. Yeah. I was playing some saxophone and I was playing harmonica. Great. So you have played harmonica with Robert Plant. That, well, that's a great claim to fame there, right there, Ricky. Oh, yes, I have, yeah. It was actually Robert who um, helped me get started on playing amplified harmonica. He gave me a JT30, which I've still got. Some of the people who were working with the band rigged me up with um, a Fender Princeton amp. So when I was doing the Honey Drippers gigs and playing harmonica, I was playing through a JT30 running through um, a Fender Princeton. That was it. Yes, I played harmonica with Robert. <laughs> well, amazing. Yeah. Did you ever do any Led Zeppelin songs? <laughs> no. It's interesting. He deliberately didn't want to do anything uh, Led Zeppelin at all. And of course, a lot of the places we were playing, people were wanting to hear Led Zeppelin songs. Yeah, exactly were, and, yeah. and there were a couple of occasions, I remember one, I think it was at Leeds University, where he actually stopped the show and and talked to the audience and tried to explain to them why he was doing the stuff he was doing and that it was just too raw for him to even think about doing Zeppelin uh, yeah. numbers this soon after John Bonham dying. I mean, once he'd done that, the audiences were fine. But yeah, the, the, we did have occasions where people were shouting out for um, a particular Zeppelin number. So then, uh, so after the the Rialtos, you then were in a band called the Big Town Playboys, which That's again right. was quite you know quite a successful band. I certainly was aware of them at the, when they were playing. Yes, I mean the the formation of the Playboys was really down to myself and Andy Sylvester. After the Rialtos finished, we initially really wanted to try and form an authentic Chicago-style blues band. And, and one of the reasons for that, and I think it's worth mentioning, the impact that the fabulous Thunderbirds had in this country. When they came over, they supported The Clash on a number of gigs in the UK and Europe and came over after that on their own. The Thunderbirds played at the Barrel Organ in Birmingham. 
and this would be around about 81. Really, it was through people like myself and, and other players seeing the Thunderbirds at that time that got us to understand there was a big difference between an authentic style blues band and the sort of blues bands which were around in the UK. So Andy and I really wanted to try and get an authentic sound, sounding band together. We looked at, went to see various people to see if we thought they'd be interested. But what actually swung it in the end was the fact that through a lot of my musical career, I've also, alongside that, been um, a teacher in schools. And it just so happened that I was the teacher of Mike Sanchez and Ian Jennings. So I suggested to Andy, because I knew that Mike and Ian had a little rockabilly band together called the Rockets, I said, well, why don't we go and see Mike and Ian and see if they'd be interested in tagging along with us? So that's what we did, and they did. They, they, were, they were up for the idea. We recruited um, a drummer that I'd worked with in Ricky Cool and the Icebergs, and that was the original uh, Big Town Playboys lineup. So you're playing uh, plenty of harmonica in this band, then much more blues. And, well, yeah. I was initially, but again, Andy and I, and also Mike, we were like musical sponges. We were all through this time with the, with the Icebergs, the Rialtos, and the Playboys. We were on a sort of voyage of musical discovery as well. Andy and I discovered all of the fabulous sort of West Coast blues musicians, people like Tiny Grimes, Roy Milton, obviously T-Bone Walker, all of those sort of people. And that influence started coming into the Big Town Playboys and in a way started to push out the Chicago blues influences. We were taking more and more influences from those musicians. I mean, people like Amos Milburn, he was a huge influence on um, on the Big Town Playboys. So the harmonica started taking a bit of a backseat to the saxophone, although we, we did retain harmonica numbers in the set, like, for instance, uh, Shaker Hips, the Slim Harpo. some George Smith numbers we used to do. We used to do one called Rockin'. So, so yeah, so showing your, you know, in, like you say, you're into a musical sponge and then you started getting into reggae and you're in a, a band called Top Ranking. That was quite a bit later. Top Ranking was towards the end of the 1990s into the 2000s. I was already a fan of reggae, but um, being part of that band, all of whom, apart from myself and another saxophone player who I've played with for a number of years, uh, Ted Bunting, all of the other musicians were schooled reggae musicians. We had um, a singer who'd actually come over to this country via somewhat dubious means from Kingston. And we never knew his proper name, but we christened him George Nightingale because he was such a great singer. So we had George in front of the band. He could sing Delroy Wilson. He could sing Gregory Isaacs, uh, all of those great reggae singers, and he could do it so well. In top ranking, it was, it was wonderful because it just gave me the chance to really immerse myself with reggae musicians and sort of pursue my love of reggae music as well. That then you carried this on into your current band, which is called Ricky Cool and the In Crowd. Absolutely. So in this, you've got you know you've got rhythm and blues and Jamaican sort of ska reggae and uh... yes, there's a lot of ska influences, rock steady, very early reggae, 
and also going back to um, Mento, tracks like My Composition, uh, The Coconut Question are heavily influenced by Mento. Great. And, and so with these, I mean, you were playing quite a lot of saxophone, but uh, recently I understand you, you, one of the members of your band had to leave. So you're, you're bringing more harmonica into this, this band again. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Well, dur- during the, um, the COVID period, the other saxophone player, Ted, who I mentioned earlier, he moved house and he now lives too far away, really, to make it viable for him to, you know, to continue with the band. I made the decision really that we should try and continue as a five piece. And this was, again, one of the things that happened during COVID was I decided I really needed to get back and do some serious harmonica playing because having been self-taught and having in those early days not actually seen any other harmonica players to talk to, nobody who could mentor me in any way. You know, I'd obviously, I've learned quite a bit of technique, but I'd learned a lot of mistakes as well. So I decided I was going to get back and really do some serious study, which which I did and have done and yeah. continue to do. Yeah, I decided I'd really like to get the harmonica to be much more of a feature in Ricky Cool in the In Crowd, which has happened. Picking out a couple of the songs, well, first of all, um, one of the songs is uh, The Coconut Question. It's quite melodic, melodic playing, isn't it? You're, you're duetting with a flute. Is that your approach to the kind of uh, reggae, you know, Jamaican style of music? Well, it's just it's it just suits that number. So I'm I'm playing in first position. I think on an E flat. I'm playing diatonic harmonica, but I'm playing first position. And on on the on the version that we released on the um, Flamingo Nights album, I duet with Ted, who also plays flute as well as saxophone. It just really suits that mento feel. So what I, what I want to know about this song is, how does the milk get into a coconut, Ricky? <laughs> yeah, I, I always ask that question when we're doing it as a gig. There is a story behind that song. It goes back to when I was an apprentice at an engineering company near Hales Owen. There was a guy who worked at this factory who was a sort of a maintenance engineer, used to do sort of like building maintenance around the factory site. And his name was Albert Stackhouse, which is a great black country name. One of his things was when, whenever you'd see him around the factory and you say, oh, hi, Albert, how you doing? He'd, he'd always just come back and quote poetry at you, whether it was accurate poetry or just what, something he'd made up. I've no idea. Basic thing is he would just talk nonsense back to you. So one day there was another guy in the factory who I overheard asking him how he should go about doing some crazy paving at his house. And Albert's reply was, how does the milk get in a coconut? Uh (laughs) So that stuck with me. I mean, I was, what, 18 when that happened, 17 maybe. And it's just stuck in my head. It's a great line, yeah. In the in crowd, when we were, you know, I I just had this mento idea running in my head with the punchline being, how does the milk get into a coconut? (laughs) The rest of the song got composed around that. And so, and then a a couple of new songs, which haven't yet released yet, you you sent through to me. Yeah. You're playing a song called Contactless, which is based on a, a Jamaican a musician, Roy Richards, playing a song called Contact. So you're using a, a sidel fanfare tremolo on this. That's correct. Yeah, 
yeah, I mean, I, I love the um, fanfare tremolo, but that's probably because I'm not really a tremolo player and the layout of the fanfare is exactly the same as a solo-tuned diatonic or, well, it's, uh, or a chromatic. So I can kind of get my way around the fanfare because of being familiar with chromatic and um, solo-tuned harmonicas. Yeah, and you've got another, uh, you've you got a solo-tuned harmonica in a song called Stairmen as well, another new one you're bringing into the band. state i'm in yeah and the reason for that throughout that number when i'm playing harmonica i play in octaves and it's just kind of a bit easier on a 10 hole size diatonic to play the octaves so i got i got sidle to make me one up using the configurator on the website yeah that was great stuff yeah and so using a variety of harmonicas so if we can now we'll move on to your mississippi sax uh youtube series so yes so as i mentioned at the beginning you've done this great series of videos which i definitely recommend people to check out and i'll put some links to some of them on your youtube channel and everything on onto the podcast page so the idea of this is you, you're taking some great saxophone riffs or just parts of solos just usually little quite sh- short sort of sections of solos and you're basically adapting them to harmonica and then you know playing them on harmonica so it's it's a great resource because someone like yourself who plays saxophone, like you say, you love that music. You listen to lots of saxophone music. You know, we're forever forever hearing people talk about how harmonica players try to sound like a horn, you know, and and this kind of thing. So it, it's a great way to really dive into that. And obviously, you spent a lot of time really are trying to sound like a horn and, and specifically trying to emulate horn lines. Yeah. So um, tell us how you you know where you came up you know the idea to do that. Well, the idea came about really because. Um, on um, YouTube, there is um, a great saxophone player, Randy Hunter. I followed a lot of his YouTube videos. He just did a, a, a little series called Great Blues Motifs for Saxophone. That's what sparked the idea. There are some fabulous little bits of saxophone, which are really bluesy, which I'm sure would be great to play on the harmonica. So I, I started going through my collection and obviously with my sort of rhythm and blues background, particularly the West Coast stuff, I was um, aware of some of those great um, players who played rhythm and blues rather than jazz. So that kind of in a way was a starting point for me. But it really, it's just the idea we all know because we've heard the stories countless times, how little Walter was heavily influenced by the other sax players he saw in and around Chicago. That's how the idea came about. All I wanted to do and all I want to do with this really is show people who tune into my channel in one of those videos is that, um, you know, there are influences all around. It doesn't necessarily have to be a saxophone. Uh, it's just the fact that they call the harmonica the Mississippi saxophone. Yeah, just on that name, it's funny because the, the third episode in a row now, the, the, the place of Mississippi has featured quite heavily in, in the last few episodes. So I don't know if you know anything about that. I guess it's just because that's where, you know, the blues kind of originated from. And uh... Well, all I can tell you about that is that in 2008, I did a, a road trip in the States from Memphis and my, mm-hmm. and my next stop on, the, on my journey was Clarksdale. Being in Clarksdale and the surrounding areas, the atmosphere, it's just when you're in Clarksdale and you walk, you're walking along one of the streets and you see John Lee Hooker Avenue, it's just sort of oozes the blues. Yeah. I, when I stayed in Clarksdale, I stayed at a, a, a hotel called the Riverside Motel. 
And the Riverside Motel had at one time been a hospital, and it was the hospital where Bessie Smith died. Since it had become a motel, it had been in this one family for years. And uh, I pulled up outside the motel, and it looked really ramshackle from the outside. Outside the hotel was a plaque about the Bessie Smith story, part of the um, Mississippi Blues Trail. So I was reading this, and a guy came out of the hotel, and he said, oh, he said, what are you looking at? I was, said, I was reading this. He said, and are you looking for a place to stay? And I said, well, yeah, I, I, I was thinking of maybe staying here. I was sort of, sort of taking my sort of courage in my hands. He said, come on in and look around. It turned out it was the owner of the hotel. It was immaculate inside, but it was, it was like a time warp. All of the furniture was from the 1940s and 50s. And so he said, well, which room do you want? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, this one, this is the room where John Lee Hooker would stay when he was passing through. Mm-hmm. The one down at the end here, Muddy used that room a lot. This one here, this was Sonny Boy Williamson's room of choice. Mm-hmm. So which one do you want? So I, I ended up, I said, well, I, I, I'm a harmonica player. I've, I, I'll have to stay in Sonny Boy Williamson's oh, room. Yeah, of course. So there I was in the room that Sonny Boy Williamson, so the man was telling me, stayed in. And once I'd got settled, he took me on a tour around Clarksdale and took me to a little jam session that was going on, introduced me to everybody and said, oh, this is a harmonica player from the UK, Ricky Cool. It, it was then, oh, come on and play. I, I, I sat in with so many people while I was doing this road trip. I mean, the harmonica was such a great little entree to make this trip so memorable. Fantastic, yeah. That sounds like it's a it's definitely a road trip we should all do as, as harmonica players, yeah. Yes, I mean yeah. if you're if you're into blues, you really you yeah. know, if you get the opportunity, you really should sort of yeah. travel around those areas that we've all read about and heard yeah. about in songs. So yeah, so the Mississippi Sax one again, you it sounds like you've you focus more on the kind of blues rhythm and blues end than the Um well not necessarily. Bits of jazz as well, isn't there in there? Yeah. Yes, and particularly uh, I've found really because I'm a big fan of it, that period of jazz when blue note records really came into prominence, you know, the late 50s and through into the early 60s. There's so much bluesy saxophone on those records. It's it's a it's a wonderful resource. Yeah. The very latest video that I've put on in that series is actually a trumpet, uh, a little bit of trumpet uh, from Lee Morgan um, yeah. on the classic track "Moaning," the Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers track, because mm-hmm. the opening few notes, the little motifs that Lee Morgan plays on that, are just stunning. <laughs> They're great for third position blues harmonica. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's a question. Uh, we'll start looking to some of the specific um, songs you cover. But that's a question. You know, you know what really is the difference between these horn lines and you know and playing them on harmonica and and play, learning from other harmonica players. You know, what what do you think you you know you're learning differently from that? Obviously, it's a different instrument. One thing, isn't it? Well, different instrument for one thing, and because of the all instruments have their own um, nuances and things like that as as we know but there are things that obviously saxophone players will do which maybe a harmonica player wouldn't naturally sort of think of because particularly if your main influence is coming from other harmonica players but with a little bit of investigation and a little bit of experimentation you you can find that these ideas actually 
you know, even if it's not exact, work really, really well. And what I'm trying to get across is that as a player, really, when you when you get up and play, you want to try and sound like yourself, not like your heroes or this, that and the other. So the more little things that you can pick up from other places and put into your bank of resources, ultimately, it's going to give you a more individual sound and and give you your own voice, if you like. Yeah. I mean, it's a tried and tested technique. You know, you pick up all your influences from other people and then eventually you, you get your own sound. Yeah, and I think you approach it very well. You choose quite a short section of a, of a solo from various different great players. Yeah. And then, you know, you sort of, you say, here you, you tab it out for the harmonica and you sort of demonstrate playing it on the harmonica and then you sort of play it with a backing track and then yeah. you sort of, you know, loosen it up a little bit and saying, you don't, obviously you don't have to play exactly the riff, you know, you can adapt it and use little ideas from it. So, you know, I think you work that through really well. Yeah, that, that's it. I'm, I'm just really, all I'm trying to do is just show people a doorway, open it a little bit and hope that they'll go through. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, one thing obviously with little Walter probably being the most famous of someone who, you know, would sound like a horn, uh, I think... Part of that is the fact that he amplified the harmonica, you know, yes. allegedly first. But maybe, maybe other people first. But that was a big part of it. You know, it was the sound, wasn't it? He was getting, which was more sax-like, as well as the lines he was playing as well. So, you know, I mean, what do you think? You know, is it a bit of both? Or no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it is that amplified sound. I've been to the chess studios and, and seen the room and, uh, and and talked to somebody who said, "Well, they used to do things like this and and that and the other." The the sound of those little Walter recordings. I think the other thing as well that makes Little Walter stand out from all the rest is actually the quality of the songs and the quality of the instrumentals when he's doing those. You know, there are great other great players, you know, Big Walter, James Cotton, whatever. But it's the quality of Little Walter's material that makes him stand out. It's consistently such a high standard. Yeah, and I think definitely it's some of his, like you're touching it though, it's his instrumentals, which do have horn-like lines, don't they? Yeah, They're kind of long weaving lines, which are, you know, something like roller coaster or something. Yeah. You, you definitely get that kind of saxophone approach, yeah. And, and I mean, for instance, if you if you listen to his solo on My Babe, I mean, the opening of that solo is very kind of saxophone influenced. You could hear yeah. you could hear a saxophone player playing that. Yeah, absolutely. So. So, so you've done 19 videos so far in total. And as you said, the, the last one you've done is actually a trumpet. I think all the others are saxophones, they aren't are, they? Yeah. G- generally alto and, and uh, tenor saxophones. That's yeah, right. So, yeah. so the, the first one you do is a, a very, very nice song called Hip Couple by uh, <laughs> yes. Jeff Barry. <laughs> you know, you start off quite simple. Absolutely, yeah. I wasn't even sure when I did that who the saxophone player was. I thought it might well be 
King Curtis because um, he was around New York at that time and played on a number of rock and roll records because, I mean, Hip Couple is a sort of a, a novelty rock and roll song. But somebody in the comments um, with the video did tell me that it was, in fact, King Curtis. And and it's very simple. You know, I mean, it's very simple, but it's such a great line. And then, then the next one that's a great song I really love is uh, Kidney Stew. Yeah, so this is an alto saxophone. You've got the alto sax and then you've got you playing it on harp as well. And then that. You know, just getting those different ideas yeah, from the saxophone. Line. That's right. Well, we used to do Kidney Stew in Ricky Cool and the Iceberg. So that was in my head. And um, and so, yeah, you move through. There's another one, Blue Jean, which is a very kind of mellow kind of... Oh, yeah. Gene Ammons. Fabulous. Yeah. And then I think, uh, is it that one where you've got this kind of like very subtle kind of slow bends that he's doing on the saxophone? And That's right. Yes. Yes. He's playing subtone. <laughs> The thing that really got me about that one is the fact that on that opening riff, now I, I don't know if I'm in the same key as him now, I'm just picking up a harmonica at random. So. And he finishes on that bent note. It's not what you would naturally sort of think to play. You know, you, you'd probably think... Uh, yeah. So to finish on the seventh, I, I, you know, it's just one of those little things that, as a harmonica player, you can do, which kind of, it just grabs people's attention. That's something about these saxophone players. I mean, some of these saxophone players were, you know, the serious musicians, right? They probably spent like 15 hours every day playing the saxophone, right? So they've, they've really dug deep into it. And, uh, you know, so it's good to take ideas from those guys who've gone so deeply, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, the thing we have to remember is that those guys were playing every night yeah. of the week, you know, 300 plus times yeah. a year. We're not able to do that now. You know, live music is different. Those guys had got serious chops. Yeah. The really good thing about the uh, the series that you've done is it, it's a really good way to discover all these different saxophone players. You know, I mean, many of us, you know, have heard of the famous ones, Charlie Parker and obviously Miles Davis playing trumpet. But, you know, you really, you know, to be able to dig through all these different saxophone players yeah. it is a really great resource from that, you know, so people can go and check them out and go, actually, yeah, you know, this is a really good you know, way to sort of think about other ideas. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the beauty of YouTube, isn't it? And you've got uh, Louis Jordan, I know is a big favourite of yours. You've got him doing a, a rumba, a blues rumba, which you think might be the first blues rumba early in the morning. Early in the morning, yeah. It could well have been. There was that period of time in jazz and it, and it spilled over into uh, rhythm and blues where... Um, Afro-Cuban music was so popular, particularly in New York. And of course, Louis Jordan, being the star he was, would have been traveling all over. So he would have heard a lot of that music. And of course, then he composed early in the morning. And, of course, the blues rumba is like a standard form. You know, if, if you went to a good blues jam in anywhere around L.A. or something like that, if you were living in the States, you know, you could call a blues rumba and they'd know exactly what to play. And then 
the, the song you do, which is a Horace Silver song, Jolie Grind. Yeah. You, you do this one in, in uh, as a third position. So what, what made you choose third position for that on harmonica rather than second? Really, it's just the motif that I listen to and experimenting with it. It will have had a minor feel. It kind of just suggests third position. Uh, and one thing you, you do quite a lot is because obviously the saxophones are playing in sort of B flat and E flat and A flat and things. You 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 quite often sort of go to a C harp so that most people have got the harmonica needed as well. Yeah. Yes, you, the horn keys are not necessarily the harmonicas that people are going to have. Say apart from the B flat, which of course is one of the common ones. Yeah. So what I do like to transpose to a, a different key harmonica, but of course the po- the point is once you've tabbed it out and I've and I've given people that resource then it applies to any harmonica you want to play. And uh, an interesting comment you made on um, Is Everything All Right, so another of the songs you do, is um, yeah. is how saxophones, because you can only blow on saxophones, you've kind of got natural stops because you kind of run out of breath. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest faults for harmonica players, particularly inexperienced players, is because you obviously can make a sound by blowing or drawing through the instrument is to play all the time and you'll get some people who get up and play and they don't understand about playing behind somebody else or leaving some space for the groove of the band to come through as a saxophone player you naturally have to make pauses to take breath a lot of beginner and sort of inexperienced harmonica players will just sort of play all the time rather than thinking about the overall music. Yeah, and I think another really good point that you pull out from the sax solos you've, you've done is how they play phrases. Yes. You know, which I think they're particularly strong. You know, obviously listen to blues harmonica a lot and then listen to all the great blues harmonica players. You'll, you'll get that. But, you know, they're particularly strong at that, I think, aren't they, the saxophone players? Because that yeah. kind of, is kind of a jazz thing, isn't it, too, as well, to do that kind of call response. And, yeah. It is. Mm. And, 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 of course, a lot of, as I say, beginner or not very experienced harmonica players will just sort of play all over the instrument without thinking about what they're actually trying to say. Yeah, and so you can take some great inspiration from these players, yeah. And you, you've got Lucille, which is oh. the Little Richard song, which I wish you're a massive fan on that, a great solo yeah. on that as well. And So, yeah, fantastic resource. So, yeah, definitely recommend people check it out. Is there any of the 19 so far that you think particularly sit brilliantly on the harmonica, or, or is it all of them? Well, they all work. It depends. Like, for instance, the one where I was looking at Maceo Parker and his sort of funk style playing. I particularly like that one because his phrases are so short, those little short stabs. You can tell that really part of him is actually listening to the James Brown band and the groove that they're laying down and then sort of fitting in like in that, like almost like a percussion instrument. You know, if you're playing any, any sort of a funky style groove on the harmonica, that's just a great way to approach it, is think of yourself as though you're a percussion instrument. Whenever I play, particularly if I'm playing blues, I always try to have a picture in my head. For want of a better thing, if I was playing some sort of slow blues number, I, I might in my head be seeing myself in some sort of nightclub and try to sort of help that 
inform how I should be playing the instrument. And then, of course, you do do other um, teaching videos as well. You know, you do some Sonny Boy and, and some sort of tongue slapping. Yeah. And, you know, yes. So you've got other teaching videos as well. But but for the saxophone ones, obviously you, you've been a saxophone player for quite a long time. This Mississippi saxophone is quite a recent thing. Do you think it has changed the way that you're approaching your harmonica playing now? I would say so. That, I mean, I mean, obviously, right now I'm playing sort of more more sort of Jamaican music than yeah. um, than sort of rhythm and blues or blues. Although having said that, one of the other gigs I do at the moment is with a guy called Chicken Bone John, who's um, a manufacturer of cigar box guitars. So it's very much rural Delta blues that I'm playing with him. And I would say that listening to all those saxophone players has informed the way I, I sort of approach my playing behind Chicken Bone John as well. Yeah. So I'll ask this, uh, I'll ask my 10 minute question now and, you know, yeah. maybe you can make it relevant to particularly to the saxophone series. So if you had 10 minutes to practice with the Mississippi saxophone in mind, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing? Well, if I'd only got 10 minutes to practice, I'm, I'm pretty certain part of my head would be thinking about, oh gosh, what have I got to be doing today? What, you know, and all the other things I'm supposed to be doing and I can only fit 10 minutes in. So the first thing is just breathe in and out through the harmonica and work from the low end to the high end, just playing chords in and out for one minute, just to sort of settle my breathing and to settle my head. I think that's really important, and and it'll warm the instrument up as well. And then I might take a particular lick that I want to sort of work on and really practice that lick or motif, and then try applying it to um, a backing track and play along with a backing track. So, yeah, if I was if I was particularly had those Mississippi saxophone videos in mind, I would do my little breathing exercise first through the instrument just to get myself in the zone, if you like, and then work on one of those little licks and motifs and try applying it to a, a backing track. I think applying it with the backing tracks is a great idea, isn't it? Because often you learn something, but actually then trying to fit it in in context and play it in the right time and everything, you know, that's the next stage that you really need to to master as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. The ones that I particularly go to from MCCD sessions, I mean, they're just so good. You'd be hard pressed to find a band in this country who's going to play as well as those backing tracks. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll definitely check out those backing tracks. Yeah, you're definitely raving about them. Yeah, so, so yeah, and so obviously you're the singer. You talked about being the front man, so you do. Uh, you've always been the singer. So I have a lot to think about when I'm on stage because I've got to, I've got to sing, I've, I've got to entertain the crowd if I can. I've got to know where my saxophone is because I've got to pick it up quickly and yeah. I've got to know where all my harmonicas are. Yeah, I have my harmonicas very, very carefully arranged um, on a little tray which I attach to my mic stand and I just have to hope that the lighting at the gig and my eyesight is going to be good enough to pick up the correct one at the correct time. Well, that reminds me, when I was young, I was playing in a band and I had to go to the toilet or whatever, and they came back and they'd, they'd rearranged all my harmonicas, which <laughs> was not nice. <laughs> I believe that Brownie McGee used to do that to Sonny Terry, you know, <laughs> yeah. with his harmonica belt. When they weren't getting on, he used to swap them all around. 
Yeah, but he only played an A harmonica pretty much. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. Well, occasionally B flat, but yeah. Um, yeah so you're a stalwart of the uh, the UK NHL festivals, and there's a video of you playing in 1988. And I've got to say, Ricky, you haven't changed much during that time. <laughs> What's your secret? You're being very kind. <laughs> um, so let's get on to uh, the last section now, talking about the gear you use. So um, harmonica wise, uh, what brand do you like to play? My sort of go-to harmonica is um, the Marine Band Deluxe. I use some crossovers as well. Since I found out that the reed plates on the crossover are exactly the same as the Deluxe, I tend to go for the Deluxe because it's cheaper. The difference, the little bit of extra brightness you get with a crossover doesn't really impact on me that much. Yeah. So the Marine Band Deluxe. And uh, I think you're you trying some custom ones recently, haven't you? Yes, I, I've got a couple which were made by um, Andrew Zajak, who's um, a owner-affiliated customizer who's based in Canada, mainly because I, I really like his um, repair videos on YouTube. I think they're fantastic. And Andrew has done a couple for me. I have to say they are wonderful instruments. I, I mean, they're they're a joy to play. You know, I'll adjust my harmonicas myself, and I definitely make them more playable, but uh, is that something you've done? Uh, yes, I, I, I do. I, you know, I, I'll tune my own harmonicas up, and I, you know, I'll sand the reed plate on the on the draw side so that it's it's making a better seal with the comb of yeah. the harmonica, that type of thing. Yeah. So you so you're improving it, but do you feel that you know buying the customized one, you really are getting something much better in it, and obviously it's worth paying for that customized one. I think so. I wouldn't have a whole set. I I couldn't justify that. Term. I mean, the the two that I had, I had I I had a C and a B flat because those are the two that I predominantly use, that they are different. The richness of the sound, the chords are so beautiful to play, yeah. uh, the feel of the harmonica. I mean, Andrew, like most other customizers, makes his own combs as well. I, I think if you've reached a pretty good standard on the instrument, it would be nice to invest in just one, you know, one custom harmonica just to see what they're like i mean one of the other motivating factors for me was i've never really been an overblow player although i am interested in overblows i've always loved on adam gusso's videos the little licks that he does which in, which include some overblows and they sound they sound great i have experimented and tried and i thought one of the reasons for getting a couple of custom harmonicas was you know if i've got a couple of custom harmonicas there's no way that i can make the excuse of saying well the instrument isn't quite set up right uh, and we talked about above how you've been trying out some uh, different. You've been got this tremolo from Seidel, and uh, and you also have a what a three six four Marine Band, which is a a twelve hall. And- yes, I, what the driving factor is for me is the song. If the song warrants blue style harmonica, then you know I would be going for my Marine Band Deluxe. But if the song warrants something else. I'll use different tunings. So, for instance, for reggae, the uh, Lee Oscar Melody Maker tuning is fabulous. You know, particularly those later reggae numbers, which tend to be on two chords, which the root chord and then the Dorian minor chord. Like, for instance, on a G Melody Maker. So you've got the draw chord and then the, the blow chord, which gives me the minor. So, you know... You're immediately in the realms of Dennis Brown, money in my pocket, and I just can't get no love. Yeah, so you so you definitely use different tune types then? Yes, I do, yeah. It's dictated by the song. What about when you're playing the saxophone lines? Are you tending to play Richter-tuned um, second position stuff, and then third position a little bit as well? 
Yeah, they'll, they'll be all Richter tuned. It's predominantly second position, but uh, again, yeah. on particular licks, it'll be uh, third position as well. And sometimes with those third position licks, a solo tuned harmonica can be quite nice because um, kind of gives you the, that rich chord that you get from a chromatic when you play third position chromatic. And you do play some chromatic as well? I do. With the band, we've, we've got a yeah two or three numbers where I use chromatic. It's third position that I'm predominantly playing, but because the numbers might not be traditional blues numbers, for instance, in our set at the moment, we do Besame Mucho, which is great you know for third position chromatic but of course is going to involve playing some um, lines which you know aren't just the stock blues chromatic lines i mean a lot of people who play jazz would use a chromatic to do that and therefore you know that you might think well the saxophone lines might work better on a chromatic but they, they don't have the same power and oomph as a diatonic do they so you, you find you know obviously That's you've done right. all your videos with the diatonic and not chromatic haven't you and of course the ones that i'm using in my series as well the, the sax players are often doing lots of little bends and scoops and things like that yeah. and other little techniques which are just great on the harmonica on the diatonic particularly so uh, what about your embouchure? What do you like to use? Um, I use both. When I started playing, when I when I learned, when I was shut up in the bedroom on my own with records and not knowing anyone else, I learned pucker. In fact, I, I never even really thought about it. It was just what I thought you did. I didn't really understand or know about tongue blocking at that time. For a long time, I didn't really know what tongue blocking was. But now, if I'm playing melodically, I will tongue block pretty much all the time if i'm playing blues style i will tongue block but from time to time we'll switch to the pucker embouchure just because i i suppose in a way that was the way i learned so i i, I use both and what about amplifiers i've got a, a, a fender baseman reissue which um, i have used a lot in the past i don't use now when i'm playing with chicken bone john i use um a Supro amp, one of, the, one of the new Supro amps. It's called the uh, Delta King 10. It's just a little 10 watt amp, but it's great because it's got a line out. So you can, you know, you can put your line out in, into a, a DI box and then go into the PA. Works really well for me on those gigs. With the band, I, I play through the PA, but I have a dedicated microphone. I'm using one of um, the Ultimate 58s with the little volume control on it. Yeah. When I switch to chromatic, I can, I can just turn it up a little bit. I've tried playing through an amp when I'm playing with the band, but I've just got so much to think about. Having an amp to sort of mess around with as well is just too much. Well, like you say, a lot of your pot you're playing, you're playing reggae and stuff, aren't you? Well, yes, it it doesn't necessarily want that sort of distorted amplified sound. And do you use any effects? When I play with Chicken Bone John, I use um, a little bit of delay. There's there is some reverb on the um, Supro Delta King, so I've got uh, I'll put a little bit of reverb on from the amp, and then I hook up through a, a delay pedal, a Lone Wolf one harp delay, and I'll just put a little bit of slapback echo on, which I will trigger on certain numbers and on other numbers I won't use. You've got some gigs coming up with your Ricky Cool and the In Crowd on your... Yeah, well, not until October with uh, Ricky Cool and the In Crowd. I'm playing with Chicken Bone John this Friday. I know you're going to be uh, doing some more Mississippi saxophone videos. I will. You know, it could be that I might delve into some other trumpet players as well. I'll, I shall keep them coming because I do enjoy doing them. And of course, it's a great way for you to learn, isn't it? Well, it helps me. It helps me incredibly, you know, because it makes me go back and really sort of examine some of those players that I've listened to over the years. Yeah. And again, uh, again, a great resource. So yeah, people uh, definitely want to check them out. Yeah. So 
thanks so much for joining me today, Tricky Dicky. Oh, sorry, I mean Ricky Cool. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yes, it's been a long time since I've been called Tricky Dicky. Thanks to Zydel for sponsoring the podcast. And be sure to check out their great range of harmonicas and products at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Many thanks to Ricky, and I urge you all to check out his Mississippi saxophone videos on YouTube. The link is on the podcast page. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to White Rock Lake Real Estate for the donation to the podcast. Please check out the website at happyhourharmonica.com. I'll leave you with Ricky to play us out with the T-Bone Shuffle, inspired by the saxophone playing of Hubert Maxwell, Bumps Myers. Myers.